Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. As always, the podcast is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, Policy Pack Software, and Liquidware. If you enjoyed the podcast each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Starting this week right out of the gate, we have to address the gigantic elephant in the room. Microsoft researchers disclosed a sophisticated attack on Orion's SolarWinds product where an adversary inserted malicious code into a supply chain development process. It's a malicious bit of code that was injected alongside legitimate code and signed with a legitimate certificate. The resulting binary included a backdoor and was then discreetly distributed into targeted organizations. All of this was discovered during an ongoing investigation, and Microsoft do not know how the backdoor code made it into the library. Research indicates that the attackers might have compromised internal build or distribution systems of SolarWinds, embedding a backdoor into a legitimate SolarWinds library, solarwinds.orion.core.businesslayer.dll. The malicious DLL calls out to a remote network infrastructure using the domains avsvmcloud.com to prepare possible second stage payloads, move laterally in the organization, and compromise our exfiltrate data. Microsoft have released a definition update for Windows Defender to quarantine the compromised SolarWinds Orion binaries. In a legal filing, Orion confirmed around 18,000 customers may be affected, and it's reported that Microsoft will soon be able to confirm how many have been affected as they have taken control of the avsvmcloud.com domain, so they should see any customers who are trying to communicate to that domain, indicating they've been affected. The breach has been coupled with the FireEye breach that I talked about on last week's episode, and similarly, it is alleged that the code was injected into SolarWinds releases by Russian state hackers. It has been reported widely that many U.S. government agencies use SolarWinds and have likely been targeted through this breach, which could potentially mean a massive leak of confidential intelligence information. Now, Krebs on Security is one of the outlets that I used when researching for this story, And many have tried to make this political, suggesting it may not have happened if the U.S. president hadn't let go of Christopher Krebs from his role as head of cybersecurity. But early reports also suggest that the hack may have been launched months ago, but that has yet to be confirmed. But it seems like it's likely that this hack did take place some time ago. Savebreach.com reported on what may have been the in for the cyber gang who carried out this attack. So while Microsoft weren't sure how the code got injected and put into the development chain, Vinod Kumar shared online that he had apparently gotten access to a SolarWinds FTP server on the 19th of November 2019 through FTP credentials leaked in a SolarWinds public GitHub repository. He tweeted on the news of this attack about a weak password he had discovered at the time. Now, the weak password is SolarWinds123, and that has been confirmed by multiple news outlets now. Vinod confirmed that the FTP credential SolarWinds leaked had write access by uploading a test file to a vulnerable FTP server, downloads.solarwinds.com, at the time, 
which apparently hosts very important files, and if tampered with, the results could be disastrous, which was likely the reason for the US government breach that happened recently. Now it's purely speculation at this time with that information, or at least some of it's speculation, but it's possible the point of attack for updating the code may have been completed simply by gaining access to the files on the FTP server and updating them right in place for others to consume. Ars Technica reported that the attackers had previously shown clever ways to get around multi-factor authentication. In a previous example of getting around Duo, they used OA, the Outlook web application, and some cookie manipulation and kind of lied in wait to grab a username and password and their MFA token to gain full access to the accounts. The story is still very much developing with some unconfirmed but interesting rumors like that of this compromised FTP from 2019, which does seem legitimate. The cyber gang's ability that they shown previously on how to bypass MFA, but it's not clear that that was used in this attack. And also the fact that 18,000 customers may be affected, but it's yet to be confirmed. Now that Microsoft have taken control of the domain, I suspect we will find out more soon. Hopefully there is going to be a full disclosure soon on when exactly the malicious code was injected in and which other organizations were targeted. I would think at least when this was injected in should be easily traceable if they're doing change control. I mean, just look at the previous versions of the DLL and see if that code was in there or not, then they'll see which release it got injected in on. I read some other suggestions that depending on where you grabbed your SolarWinds updates from, you may or may not have successfully patched the bad DLL. So you may want to double check if you think you've already patched. Also, I read that SolarWinds recommends granting antivirus exclusions for the product in some directories, which is not too uncommon, but given the situation is concerning. There have been some doing some post-disclosure deep dives with security tools like Azure Sentinel and sharing some information too. This one really caught a lot of attention for obvious reasons. I mean, look at who the targets are and just how widely used the product is. Sleepycomputer.com recommended some steps that include one, immediately isolate your affected devices. If malicious code has been launched, it is likely that the device is under complete attack control. Two, identify the accounts that have been used on the affected device and consider these accounts compromised. Reset passwords or decommission the accounts. Three, investigate how the affected endpoint might have been compromised. Four, investigate the device timeline for indications of lateral movement activities using one of the compromised accounts. Check for additional tools that attackers might have dropped to enable credential access, lateral movement, and other attack activities. So with this breach, I think it would be interesting to see if there is a widespread recommendation for SolarWinds customers to force password resets. I did not see this as a suggestion at the time of this recording, but at least if you haven't yet, you definitely should patch as soon as possible. It's also a good idea to maybe reach out to your antivirus vendors to ensure that they have definition updates for this particular vulnerability. According to a ZDNet article this week, the FBI have disclosed a tactic that has been used by several cyber gangs carrying out ransomware attacks over the last few months, at least since September. 
The tactic is cold calling victims, harassing them and trying to coerce them into paying the ransom. According to the FBI, the doppelpaymer gang is one of the first ransomware variants where actors have called the victims to entice payments. In one case, an actor using a spoofed US-based telephone number while claiming to be located in North Korea threatened to leak or sell data from an identified business if the business did not pay the ransom. During the subsequent telephone calls to the same business, the actor threatened to send an individual to the home of an employee and provided the employee's home address. The actor also called several of the employee's relatives. I'm guessing using the spoofed US phone number is because the target was in the United States and if it was like a foreign number, they'd be less inclined to answer the phone. Well, at least that's my guess. The FBI recommends that victims secure their networks to prevent intrusions in the first place. <laughs> yeah, very useful. And in the case of an attack, recommend that victims notify authorities and try to avoid paying the ransom as this emboldens attackers to carry out new intrusions enticed by the easy profits they're making, which has been echoed by a lot of different experts and organizations when these attacks occur. So if you are affected, for sure, do not pay the ransom because they'll probably just come at you again some way. ZDNet this week have also reported that hackers are selling more than 85,000 MySQL databases on a dark web portal. It has been reported often this year that organizations and individuals using MySQL have been getting sent ransom notes, usually containing a unique code, and then some instructions telling them how to go to a site and enter the unique code that they're given, which would then instruct them on how much the ransom is, how to pay it, and also that when it has been paid, they'll have an option to then decrypt and restore the database. I think this is actually a follow-up to a story that I covered a few months ago. I believe the databases have actually been posted online for some time, but interestingly in this article, there are some screenshots of those emails and the web portal that people can go to to pay the ransom, which is kind of interesting. So I'll share a link to that article with those screenshots with this episode, which you'll find on 5bytespodcast.com for episode 155 under reference links. Or alternatively, you could check out the YouTube edition, which I'll also link on 5bytespodcast.com. You'll find it under the YouTube column for episode 155. In more cheerful news, Cisco looks set to acquire cloud communication specialist IMI Mobile for 543 billion pounds sterling. The vendor works to automate digital communications for customers of certain businesses, helping them to move with digitalization and reduce their operating costs. Cisco say with the acquisition, they'll be better placed to offer customer facing businesses with end to end customer interaction solutions, a smoother and more efficient interactions between those businesses and their consumers. So pretty much a boilerplate cookie cutter <laughs> uh, statement for an acquisition. But I guess we'll have to wait and see on how this gets integrated by Cisco. Earlier this week, all of Google services went down globally. There was a mild panic on social media with people joking about going back to Ask Jeeves or Bing. Parents all over the world sobbed uncontrollably as YouTube wouldn't work. The downtime was pretty short though. It seemed like it was less than an hour. And the reason cited for the outage was a storage quota issue, which kind of reads like they ran out of disk space, which is pretty funny given it's a massive company like Google and they sell cloud storage. You think they'd be able to avoid this issue ever arising. 
but hey, no one's perfect. Personally, I use an automated action in control up to prevent this from happening on my production management server. So maybe Google needs to become a control up customer. Citrix released a bunch of updates this week with the release of Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktop 2012. But before I get into that, Kevin Howell from HTG UK shared the official Citrix and Windows Virtual Desktop proof of concept guide. So if you're looking to integrate the two and possibly publish your WVD desktops through Citrix workspaces, you'll want to check this out. Now in CVAD 2012, there's a very interesting move and that's that they finally integrated the WEM agent as part of the VDA install. But even more surprising now is the support for dragging and dropping files from your local desktop or client into your Citrix session. I can't believe it has taken this long for something that has been in VMware Workstation and other products for well over a decade, but it's a nice surprise all the same. Now, of course, whether or not you're going to enable that in your environment will likely depend on your industry. Actually, industry aside, it's probably not a good idea, at least not for remote client users. And for those on the Linux VDA, there is now support for Ubuntu 20.04 and also Wake on LAN support for anyone using Linux and remote PC, which is pretty cool. And for Citrix Cloud, I saw Citrix hero Manbinder Singh shared that from now, if running CVAD in Citrix Cloud, you can enable a service continuity feature, which is in preview, and that means that if any public cloud platform that you're relying on goes down, your sessions will continue to function and broker. I guess this is some sort of smart local host cache mode for the cloud or something. The details available at this time were not very clear. It is claimed that this is a first though, so at least that's pretty cool. I'm interested to see how it works. Too bad they didn't provide the technical details. In a Citrix-related side note, Patrick Mutella on Twitter tweeted that Citrix VDA 1912 CU2 seems to be crashing for a few applications for him, with the faltering module set as mfaphook64.dll, and the error code seems to be related to an access denied error. He's asking if anyone else is seeing this issue. Now, I haven't seen the issue yet, as I'm not on CU2 yet, but if you've seen it, please do maybe reach out to me and I can get back to Patrick with that information. Also, if you're not on the EUC World Slack channel, I think that's a really good place for this type of discussion too. And this is actually the second person that I've read about warning of issues with CU2. So, I mean, you should always test thoroughly before updating, but I mean, give this one some extra attention because it's still pretty early and there are people reporting some issues. Not to be outdone on the new features, Windows Virtual Desktop had a few big releases. There's the screen capture protection feature that's now available, which is like a DRM feature that prevents users from screenshotting their sessions. There's also role-based access control for your WVD portal and MSIX App Attach Preview is now available for you to try. So have fun. Keeping this next one short because I talked about the preview version of this release at length a few weeks ago, but Parallels RAS version 18 is now generally available. Just some of the short notes, they now have native FSLogix profile container support and WVD integration plus more. So for full details, check that out. 
ZDNet reported this week that Google acquired a company called Neverware. It's a company that's created a variant of Chrome OS called Cloud Ready, which turns your old Windows PCs into Chrome OS machines. Cloud Ready, at least in the past, was typically offered to schools to breathe life into their old PCs with G Suite for Education. The devices can be managed by the Google Admin Console, and it's reported that old Macs can also run Cloud Ready, so not just PCs. While the Home Edition is free, with the Home Edition you do not get the Google Admin Console and you don't get any technical support. There's an education subscription that gives you the technical support and it's $20 per year per device and you're able to get that central management. But for enterprise, it's $49 per year per device. The report suggests once you convert a machine to cloud ready, if you've gone from like say Windows 7 to cloud ready, there's no ability to go back to that Windows 7. And instead of using the local file system, it relies solely on Google Drive. It's an interesting acquisition and probably a smart one. Windows 7 still represents a depressingly large share of the operating system market share. So this could be a path forward for some of those users. And it'll be interesting to see how Google handles the offering once integrated. I'm assuming it's going to be put into an existing suite of products and it's not going to cost $49 per year per device, but maybe they'll surprise me. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This week, James Rankin blogged about App Ventix and FS Logics. So James points out that the App V4 infrastructure and just the infrastructure required for running App V5.1 in the past has been kind of prohibitive. It's put him off using App V as a product. And I can definitely echo that sentiment. It's unfortunate that Microsoft didn't really invest much development time into the AppV full infrastructure for the 5.x releases. And then if you're using non-persistent machines, something like SCCM for deploying your AppV packages isn't a very good option for those non-persistent machines. And at least initially, say like the Citrix integration within Citrix Studio, that required the AppV full infrastructure, but then I think it was with 7.12, so it's a long time ago now. They introduced the ability to just add your AppV packages and deploy them directly from your content share. But also initially with that, there were some bugs that took a while to get over. For a long time, I've been using AppV Scheduler, which is the predecessor to AppVentex. And now with AppVentex, you don't only just have the ability to deploy your AppV applications, you can deploy AppV, MSIX, and MSIX AppAttach. It'd be a dream come true for me if they add cloud paging support in there too. It'd be awesome to have the ability to kind of pick and choose which one you use for deploying certain packages and using this one centralized tool for deploying all of them. Now the blog post also goes into FSLogix and you can use FSLogix app masking along with your AppVentix and AppV applications to mask some of the components of those applications. So that comes in very handy when you have to maybe deploy your AppV applications globally published, which exposes it to all the users on that machine. App masking makes a lot of sense in that scenario. So I actually have one example um, for my published shared desktop users I didn't have the ability to just publish the application through Citrix virtual apps for them. It was Snagit. So Snagit, you need to be able to take screenshots of what's on your desktop. So running it in a published application session doesn't make sense. You're not going to see what's on the desktop and take screenshots of that. So I could use AppVentix 
to deploy my Snagit App V application directly to my desktops for the users and then have FSLogic's app masking to hide it from those who are not entitled to a license. And it works beautifully. And I can actually share my own blog post too with this episode that goes through how I did that, if you're interested to see it. I was recently talking to a buddy of mine who was involved in a project that integrated Calabrio Finesse and some other tools for their customer support agents. So they'd be taking phone calls and like dealing with customers taking their credit card information, possibly some sensitive data like social security numbers, and they were recording the audio and also recording the screen for archiving purposes. You know, if there's a legal dispute, you need to have all of that information to hand. It's a requirement. But one of the challenges of that is the fact that you also have to be compliant with the data. Like how do you obfuscate that sensitive data like the social security numbers, like the credit card numbers? Well, there was a blog post on automate.com this week going through how they used nanobots within the automate product to achieve that along with some other tools that we all likely already own like um, session recording or other screen recording capabilities now i didn't work directly on a project involving calabrio finesse and these other tools but i was included in some conversations on the initial project kickoff using these tools so seeing this blog post that keyed in on exactly a scenario that was in use somewhere I was working piqued my interest. And from there, I started to research Automate more, got my hands on the product and started to use it. And I found some really cool use cases and I hope to share those soon too. But this compliance remedy is probably something that's widely required across many different organizations and industries. So if it piques your interest too, definitely check out this blog post and I'll share that with this episode. And quickly on the topic of Automate, just as I read that blog post, I saw that Sam Benier, the CEO of Automate, was interviewed on the Frontline Chatter podcast. So I was still playing with the product. I was listening to the podcast and listening to Sam and the co-hosts, Jerry Gibson and Shane Kleinert, talking about Automate and some of the different use cases and how it's used to help organizations in various different industries and some of the applications it's specifically been used with to help automate things so if you're interested in the product and you want to hear more about it definitely check out that podcast too and this week i saw that nate chamberlain shared a relatively concise and handy how-to guide this week on using microsoft's flow to send an email every monday morning that includes a table of upcoming training opportunities from a SharePoint calendar um, inside a table that has an add to calendar download link. So if you've got like a training academy within your organization and you wanna be able to send some cool notification emails that contain the ability to maybe register or add the calendar item into their Outlook calendars directly from the email, this would be really cool. And finally, I'd like to plug a little bit of my own work if I can. I posted a blog this week on my top five favorite insights from Control Up Insights. So a lot of people blog and share things like their script-based actions or automated actions or even just what they've achieved using the Control Up real-time monitoring within the console. But I personally felt like Control Up Insights for the historical data was getting overlooked a lot. And maybe that's because some other products out there 
you know, give you this historical information and, and it's not necessarily new and flashy to have that. But there are some metrics within the control up insights that I find particularly useful. So I'm not going to give away the whole blog post. I'd encourage you to check it out. But like one example is I've used control up insights for helping me to gatekeep the user acceptance testing process. So like if I'm on a call with an apps team and their project manager and the apps team saying, yep, everything looks good. We tested the application you published. It's approved. Let's push it to production. Well, I can actually look and control up insights and see like when they launched the application, how many times they launched the application, time, date, and duration of the session. So, you know, if someone's telling me, yeah, this application's ready to go to production, I tested it, and I see that they only launched it once for a total of three minutes, well, something doesn't add up. So maybe I could push back and say, I think you need to test more thoroughly. But if they then decide, no, it's okay, just push it, I at least have that information, I've presented that information, so when things blow up after it's been pushed to production, you can't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> so if you're working in an organization where that sounds familiar, that feature alone would be pretty interesting for you. But I also go through some other examples of how I use insights. So if you're a control up customer, definitely check it out. If you're not a control up customer, but you've seen them um, at conferences like E2EVC or Citrix Synergy, or maybe you heard that they partnered with VMware, or you've seen their integration with IGIL or WVD or so many different avenues that they're currently going down. This might be of interest to you to check out too. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.